0: You are listening to the Religica Theolab podcast in the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University.
1: This is Michael R. Trice, Director at the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University, and you're listening to the Center's Religica Theolab. Today I'm speaking with Reverend Jerry Zerer. Jerry has over three decades of experience as a pastor and as a peacemaker. And his latest book, titled The Peacemaker's Path, brings together wisdom for the world's many religious traditions. It's a multi-faith effort, inclusive of those from the Baha'i Buddhist Christian faiths, and also from practicing Sikhs, Taoists, and Zoroastrians. Through daily readings, this text explores the kind of tenets and teachings and writings of these respective faiths and offers questions and opportunities for reflection further on in the text. But What interests me most is that in a time where we have so much societal dissonance, to have a new text come out on the Peacemaker's Path makes me want to ask Jerry certain kinds of questions. So I hope you'll stay with us and join the conversation. Take a listen. Thanks, Jerry, so much
0: for joining in this conversation today. Oh, thank you for inviting me. And I look forward to the conversation and with your listeners today. Well, that's good. And I think directly
1: to that point, we do have a strong listening audience, and they ask themselves questions about often when we highlight texts, you know, what's the importance of this text today? And there are a couple of things that come to mind. I'd like to ask you that question. A couple of things come to mind. First, I remember in 2008... The text, uh, The Big Sort, had been written. It was a story of how the United States had become kind of country of swelling cultural division and economic separation and some political balkanization, and we can certainly see that today in society. And Bill Bishop wrote the text and makes a case for America's own self-inflicted wounds. Mm. You're a peacemaker over three decades of being a clergy person in the United Church of Christ. And... We Are Facing Dangerous Divisions. That book was written in 2007. Your book was just published, and the title for the listener is The Peacemaker's Path, Multifaith Reflections to Deepen Your Spirituality. Given what I've said so far, why this book, Jerry? What's its relevance for us today? What do you hope for?
0: Well, uh, that's a great question. And I think we find that whether it's 2007 or 1968 or 1980, the issues that divide people and a lot of times it's over power competition a lot of times we use different things to separate us and there's many of us who yearn to bring that sense of unity and oneness to our world and so it you know this is an ongoing work And some people feel like this is a very hard time, and it is, I think, especially because of the pandemic, Mm -hmm. uh, the political fervor that's going on right now. But I remind people, I remember back in the 1950s when Catholics and Protestants couldn't even marry. I remind people of the 1960s when we had assassination of the president of Martin Luther King Jr. And so I believe we are making headway. I believe we're moving in the right direction. And so all those people who've worked before me to try to bring peace, I think we're doing it, but we need to continue. But I have a spirit of hope in the midst of the challenges in front of us. And I know that sounds a little weird probably to a lot of people. Well, I mean, I think
1: you know a lot of people might agree with you, or or and some might disagree, not because they don't want hope in their lives, but because this has been a really difficult, as you and I know, and as you're you're, you're noting, you know, it's been a lo- a real difficult last two years. As we look just in this country, in recent days, we've learned we're over eight hundred and three thousand people who have died or succumbed to this COVID virus. That's pretty serious, and so there's a need for a kind of deeper peace, I imagine, within ourselves within communities, within society. What's your hope? You know, a book like this should be doing something for us. What's it intended to do for us? And what's your hope in that regard?
0: I think it, you know, because of the themes of the book that are in all of our major religions, part of my writing this was to help people see that the teachings in the Quran, in the Baha'i, in the Hindu scriptures, that these themes and these wonderful scriptures realize that we have so much more in common. I mean, we could easily tell you all the things I disagree with Catholics, with Mormons, with Hindus or Buddhists. But in reality, I have found in my life that when I've met with these people, we have so much more in common if we can listen and can respect one another. And I think maybe because of the social media and we're bombarded with that, people's frustration and anger, people aren't listening, aren't respecting each other. And that's the real challenge, isn't it? To be able to hold to my point of view, but see that there's value in somebody who has a total different point of view than I do and still see each other as a child of God.
1: And maybe also to your point, a sense of value that we see in ourselves I wonder if I could read a couple sections of the text as we're talking. And I do want to encourage others to acquire this text on page 50, which is day 11 that goes through 40 days. That's right. And why those 40 days?
0: Well, I think 40 we know is a biblical number. It's a number uh, with spiritual realm, to it. but also it was just a practical for me that many of the Christian tradition might use it in a Lenten study or as a period of time. So it's not too long. I didn't want to write a book of theology. I wanted a practical book that had 40 different daily devotions. So you could do it on a weekly basis because each week has a theme, or you could read it one a day for 15 minutes. So that was my intention.
1: You know, you note on page 50 with regard to Itzhak Perlman, who in 1995, the story of playing a violin, if the listener can imagine that, and being, I think he's first chair violin, the orchestra begins, he plays at first, and then the worst thing that you can imagine being a you know first chair violinist in that in that context is that the string breaks, and you lose your bearing in that moment about what you can do next. The instrument you're supposed to be using and trusting has changed irreparably. But you're still up to bat, so to speak, to use a different metaphor. You still have to you still have to play. But what you notice is when he was able to retrieve another violin rather than begin again, he motioned to begin right where he left off. And you note in that section, you know, sometimes it's the artist's task to find out how much music you can make with what you have left, rather than assuming we must always, we must always start over. When I read that, I think a lot of people today feel, how do I cultivate a life of hope and meaning right now, often at the end of day, with what I have left? When some of the strings feel frazzled or broken, and that's a section on gratitude. What do you think of that? What are your thoughts?
0: I think that's so so true, and I think it's a great question that all of us, you know, I mean, there are days when we all get discouraged, we lose some focus. Even we, we're people of faith, but we're human beings. And I think that's why uh, gratitude is so important. I I would start to make a list of things I'm thankful for, things I'm grateful for. And you know what's amazing is I started to make that list. I I started to realize, gosh, how much more I have than what what I was focusing on that was making me feel so discouraged. Mm. And so much of it is, what will we choose to focus on and be our intent to? And I think that's gratitude. And, you know, in kindness, you know, those things feed on itself. And we don't have to be great, you know, leaders or great artists. We do with what we can in a way of bringing some healing, bringing some hope to another. And it's in small ways, I think, that our lives come forward and bring healing. Do you find
1: when people are reading this kind of text at a time where you also have reference to a passage, really, through this, the peacemaker's path. So there's a pilgrimage through the text that there's a way in which we're required not to do that in a solitary space. That This is also a kind of text that can draw you together into community. And the questions that, that are fitted for, really, a communitarian response, what do you think is the value of peacemaking and the, the importance of the beloved community around that effort today?
0: Well, I think community is is so important. I think I have been so enhanced by being a part of a community. And, you know, when you're part of a community, you don't agree with everything each of us has. But there's something that we work towards together. And that community can get manifested in different ways. My daughter sings in a choir, an acapella choir, and they're community together where they they care for one another. They look out for one another and especially i think when we're trying to bring peace into our world or bring hope into our world finding a place with others that we can feel connected with i think loneliness and feeling isolated has been something that in the pandemic people have mm-hmm. experienced and we yearn for mm-hmm. and community is something you have to be intentional about and it's it's not a you know it's not something that just happens But the power of community, I'll give you an example. When the uh, congregation Telfilia had uh, some swastikas sprayed on the temple, and that was on a Thursday night. Someone came in and uh, someone came in and attacked uh, the synagogue. Attacked the synagogue, Mm -hmm. sprayed swastika, the symbol of Hitler and Nazis, Mm -hmm. spray painted the temple. That was on a Thursday night. By Monday, just because of our networking, social media, our reaching out to one another, we had a service of solidarity at 7 p.m. Mm-hmm. Now, most people at 7 p.m. are going to go home. They just want to do their thing. There was almost a 1,000 people at that synagogue, mm-hmm. people from all the some who are agnostic, people who just said, we stand in solidarity together. And the ripple effects of that were so powerful that the Jewish community found out that they weren't isolated, that there were other people in the community who really cared about them and looked out for them. And so when that happened, then there was a shooting in a mosque and the Jewish community came together to the mosque in our city and they stood in solidarity with signs saying we love you, we're in peace with you, Mm. solidarity with you. And, you know, I mean, it's one thing to have little meetings where you talk to one another, but to go in action, to go and stand in solidarity in Muslims and Jews together was a powerful thing that happened that the ripple effects are continuing to go with.
1: Mm -hmm. And those ripple effects, it seems have something to do almost with a kind of of shared community or courageousness. Like it's something in the spiritual mitochondria. Like there's if we really are imagining that multi-faith practices see all of our humanity as a kind of shared body, then it's of benefit in the circulatory system of that body to be really caring for one another because it's not a hypothetical thing that, that we are in any way less or weakened by not being in communion with each other or in connection with one another. It really is true. What if those thousand people hadn't have shown up? What would that have meant to the Jewish community, do you think?
0: well i think they would have felt isolated they would have felt like gosh they would have lived in more fear i think they would have felt that people in the community don't value them and you know that's the difference that's the power of those things that happened so that it's funny when when the jewish community stood in front of the mosque the imam was in saudi arabia and so they FaceTimed him. He was in Saudi Arabia with some other imams. And he said to the imams in Saudi Arabia, you won't believe it, but there's Jews outside of my mosque standing in solidarity saying, we love you. And the other imams of Saudi Arabia couldn't even imagine that. Yeah. And they said, no way. And he showed them on FaceTime and he showed them this and he said, yes, this is true. Different cultural
1: contexts, right, in those in this ways, yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: And I just don't think we're aware of the positive reinforcements because those things don't carry with the media. Right. You know, those things aren't glossy, but that still says we need to, you know, fight the good fight, keep the faith. It does make a difference.
1: It does, and maybe prayer also isn't glossy, but you make a pitch, a really important one that sounds less than authentic the way I described it. I mean, it's an important a step forward to be able to say, look, even in a time where a lot of people are feeling marooned and isolated, the power of prayer, of meditative space, of reflection of silence, of kind of getting into our interiority a bit, a lot of people are really wondering about how they do that effectively. And, and in a time where they may doubt its efficacy, you know, does this really matter for my life? You're making a connection and saying, well, actually, gratitude in community and gratitude toward the divine in whatever way these religions shape it kind of transcendence or mystery is an essential part of our our human walk have i got that right
0: and if so could you say a little more about that well i i think that you're exactly right and that's what i'm hoping is people will read this devotional and then be exposed to the scriptures from the different faith traditions we see these themes are so consistent within all of our faith traditions about kindness and forgiveness prayer, the connection with the divine. And, you know, that's really where that's the inner peace part. That's the part that prayer for me used to be, oh, I'm going to be praying to God and hoping that God will answer my prayers, kind of like, give me what I want. And if you don't, then, okay, I don't understand it. I've seen prayer now as a way of going inward, not trying to change another, but how it changes myself the prayer that helps me to quiet my mind and to come into uh, centering. And so that's why mindfulness, reflection, self-awareness is all part of prayer, the power of prayer that can change not just our lives, but the others. Another example, when I was a pastor in Fort Wayne, Indiana, we were having a rise in homicides. And it was happening now that there was in a town of 100,000 people where maybe they had 25 homicides a year. We were starting to have one a week. And this was really doubling in the rate. And we didn't know what to do. We were frustrated because we saw the violence. And it's like many of us who sees the things in the world happening and we go, what can we do? So we started gathering where the place was, the homicide. And it first started out with about seven or eight of us. And we joined together in prayer. We poured some water over where the sometimes there was still blood on the road or on the cement. And we would pour and we would pray together. Now, this started again. We we just did it on every Saturday. If there was a, a murder that week, we would meet at Saturday at the place that started moving just because back in those days we didn't have social media. Mm-hmm. And we ended up with people of all faith traditions about 40 people praying together, joining together. We'd sing, let there be peace on earth. We were joining this. And you know what was amazing? And I I write about this and I show the statistics that that year was the highest year of homicides. It declined after that year. Mm -hmm. I really feel like the people in the community joining together against fear, prejudice, anger, it broke something in the cycle. and. I feel there's such power in that prayer when we join together with others. You know, you've also, I think,
1: been really clear in this text, as as also is clarified in your in your comments just now about the importance of kindness. And you know, on page one thirty-five, on the thirty-first day, in the title of interdependence, you note that kindness is essential. I think the way you're describing it right now, in a substantial level. When we experience kindness with one another, our our brain actually has a a chemical response, and you name that. that The more kindness we experience in our world, the more trusting, generous, and friendly uh, we become, the healthier we become. This sense of kindness as a kind of high oxygen or even octane, or something maybe akin to mineral or iron, that there's a deficiency without enough kindness in society. And we know it because we start to feel socially anemic but kindness itself is so important. Is there anything else you'd like to say about kindness, or is there something else alongside kindness that you also would say, this too is an essential aspect, like we just did in consideration of prayer?
0: Well, I think as as we talk about kindness, and I think you're right, it is when a society is anemic, and the thing that can change is kindness. Kindness is, and not just to somebody who we like, but Kindness to somebody who irritates us. I love the story, Gandhi and Winston Churchill. Gandhi, Gandhi hated cigar smoke. It just, it he just, ugh, he didn't like it. But when he would be in meetings with Winston Churchill, Winston Churchill would smoke a cigar and light up and blow the smoke. So the way that Gandhi was going to change his own spirit, his own anger, or look at Winston Churchill, he said to Winston Churchill, let me light your cigar for you. And offering the sense of kindness, this way of reaching to him, something that irritated him, and something happened in that. And I think it's true. I've had people who've irritated me, and I thought they were very ego-centered, or something happened. And if I did something for them, something shifted And our relationship shifted and I became friends with somebody who I never thought I'd be friends with. So the power of kindness is there. And, you know, with kindness, I think it is forgiveness, empathy and forgiveness. Empathy is understanding that somebody what shoes they walk in are not my way and rather be judgmental, try to have empathy. And that way with forgiveness, those are powerful spiritual principles that I think have brought me inner peace as I have been able to work better at that. And also I see the change that's happened in communities because of those things.
1: Let me ask you maybe a final question on this with regard to the text. And that is, this text was just published this year Yes, in the middle of a pandemic. We're about to enter 2022. It was published in 21. When you look forward two years, three years from now, what do you think will be a couple of the other prevailing themes from this book that will be important for us to consider in society we've spoken about kindness and forgiveness and prayer what else are you seeing that you you believe is just essential to our shared experience to be cognizant of it as we're looking at the new year and the year after
0: i think it is and you made reference to it two things i think that we will realize is our interdependence we cannot do this being separate from one another And the more separate we are, the more isolated we are. And when we can finally move to a level of respect, move out of our competition, having a way of valuing each person, and that part of that will be in listening. When I watch the news shows, and whether it's on MSNBC or Fox, they're all just kind of shouting. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's kind of like TV wrestling. It's just, it's very sensational. It's very all that, but, but it's not healthy. No. And it will take that for us that that's going to be the things that we're going to see that we're continuing to build the themes on.
1: Yeah, that's really good. You remind me that many of those shows that you just identified, I look at their sets and with all the lights on and the bright colored kind of banners and sets and the desk that's forward facing, it's somewhat like the interior of a pinball machine. I mean, you mean, you anticipate conflict or high energy. But I think this text that you are providing us is asking people to pause from that and to seek the kind of deeper resources that are essential, not just in our own lives, but in the fabric of our shared lives. And that our future will need to look a lot more like a path toward peacemaking than the kind of infused and intentional conflict that we see so much on TV and in social media all around us.
0: And I think, you know, what's I've it's made me feel so good in in writing the book is when people have read it, there's been some people who have disconnected from God who got disillusioned, maybe because of the tradition they grew up in, or they left or their faith tradition. And when they saw God in a much bigger way that, you know, over thousands of years in different cultures, that God brought this wisdom to different great teachers that it reinforced in them that there was something beyond us, whether you call it higher power, universal consciousness, or God, there is something beyond us that is drawing us to ourself with that oneness of the divine and drawing us to one another. And the power of that love, the power of that love will win and will bring together that hope and that sense of the presence of the divine in our midst. You've been listening to the Religica Theolab podcast in the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. To learn more about the center's work and for resources to be used in local communities, visit us at seattleu.edu/thecenter.